Hi, and welcome to another episode of Dark as Hell, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Maggie, and whether you're joining us for the first time today or this is your second go around, what with this being the second episode, I am thrilled to have you here. Before we jump into today's case, though, I wanted to make it clear that here at Dark as Hell, I firmly and unquestionably believe that Black Lives Matter. This country is in the middle of a reckoning like we've never seen before. And especially as a white woman of admitted privilege, I'd be incredibly remiss if I didn't voice my support for this long overdue movement. I've spent the past week learning, signing my name to a variety of petitions, and donating, but most importantly, I've been listening to voices and perspectives different from my own through a variety of mediums in an effort to continue the process of unpacking my white privilege and to become a better ally. That said, though, by no means is this process easy or done quickly. I'm just one voice from one fledgling baby podcast, but if I can use this small platform I've begun building to help strengthen this crucial, crucial movement, I'm dedicated to doing just that. I'm committed to continuing to do the work of learning, listening, dismantling, and rebuilding. Anything less would be a disservice to George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, and the countless of other lives that were stolen and silenced by racist brutality. With that said, I hope you, the listeners that are here today and will be here in the future, will join me in this mission of creating systems and a country that values Black lives so that all lives can finally matter equally. I appreciate being able to share my thoughts on the events of the last week and feeling comfortable enough to do so here. With that said, let's take a breath and get ready to deep dive into this week's case. A case that has plagued me with more and more levels of hashtag questions and only heightened my intense distrust of cruises. Today, we're going to be discussing the disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. The year was 1998. Furbies were our pets, Britney Spears was stealing our hearts, and Titanic, in retrospect, maybe this was some ominous foreshadowing, maybe, perhaps, who's to say, was winning Oscars left and right. And for the Bradleys, it was a pretty exciting year indeed. Ron Bradley, patriarch of this all-American family from Petersburg, Virginia, had won a week-long Royal Caribbean cruise on the Rhapsody of the Seas as a performance reward from his employer, his wife Iva and son Bradley, which, sidebar, <laughs> you named your son Brad Bradley. <laughs> like, really? They were just as excited as Ron for the trip, but their 23-year-old daughter Amy didn't exactly share in their excitement. You see, Amy had a bit of a hang-up going on the cruise. 
Oceans freaked her out, despite the fact that she had been a lifeguard growing up, and she was known to be a really strong swimmer. To be fair, I mean, I kind of get it, because I grew up in, you know, the verifiable ocean state, and if I think about the unknown depths and the secrets of the great big blue, like, I do not understand the physics of the ocean, and how is it so deep, and where does it all end? So, I mean, if I get on that mind track, for far too long, I too probably need to start breathing into a brown paper bag. But all that said, not only that, Amy's fears aside, she was a recent college grad who had just moved into her own apartment. She was about to start a new job, and really, excitingly enough, she just adopted a puppy of her own. So needless to say, girlfriend had a lot going on, and she was clearly looking forward to starting her new life. Despite her hang-ups, Amy's parents and her brother eventually convinced her to join them on the week-long cruise that would be taking off from Aruba. Amy's mother in particular wanted this trip to be their last family vacation before Amy really struck out on her own as an independent young woman living her post-grad life. That sweet sentiment aside, I imagine Brad, her 21-year-old brother, who she was super close with, also helped finally persuade her with talks about the ideas of seven days cruising in the Caribbean, endless cocktails, beachy weather, and all the glamorous things that you see in cruise brochures. So, as it was, on March 21st, 1998, the Bradley family embarked on what was supposed to be the vacation of a lifetime. And, as they say, if they only knew then what we know now. From the jump, things seemed a little weird on board the Rhapsody of the Seas. Even from the first night on board, some of Amy's anxieties seemed to be coming to fruition. The wait staff, for whatever reason, seemed immediately interested in Amy. Bordering on weirdly obsessed with the amount of attention they started paying to her, even on the first freaking night. Amy complained to her mother and brother about how such a hubbub from the staff gave her the creeps. These creeps only intensified after dinner when waiters approached Mrs. Bradley asking where Amy was. And sidebar, she was literally just in the bathroom, like let the girl breathe. Asking Mrs. Bradley though, where she was so they could take her out to one of the clubs that was popular in Aruba where they were docked that night. Seems a bit weird, bit of the creep. So I'm kind of on board with Amy with that one. However, a few days passed and Early on the morning of March 24th, we find our cast of characters, aka Brad and Amy, living it up and partying on down in the cruises club with the band Blue Orchid that had been performing throughout their time on the cruise. One of the band members, Alistair Douglas, aka who will soon become to be known as uh, Our Boy Yellow, had somehow overcome Amy's general mistrust of the other cruise employees, and he'd spent the night dancing, grooving, boozing, with our girl. Yellow, and I am not kidding, that is actually what he went by, and I cannot take him seriously. So, dark as hell, rule number one, never trust a man named Yellow. <laughs> Yellow claims he parted ways with Amy by around 1 a.m. Brad left the club at around 3.30 a.m. It's disputed whether or not Amy was with him, though. I've read a number of reports that said Brad was gone by 1 a.m., that they left together to go back to their cabin at 3.30. 
or that Amy left by herself a little after 3.30, after Brad, and returned to the cabin then. From what I can ascertain, though, it seems that Amy followed Brad back to their cabin a little after 3.30, because the two of them sat on their balcony for a bit to discuss what they would do during the day since they were just about to dock in Curacao in only a few hours. Brad decided to hit the hay at around 4, 4.30, but Amy stayed on the balcony, claiming she felt queasy and thought the fresh air plus a cigarette might do her some good. All in all, it seems like Brad and Amy were on the deck anywhere from 3.30ish to around 4, 4.30 a.m. Amy remained on the balcony by herself where she was spotted by her father between 5.15 and 5.30, having apparently fallen asleep on a lounge chair. Ron decided to let her sleep for a little bit longer, which, what the hell? Like, <laughs> move your daughter to her bed. Like, I just find it super odd he didn't, you know, like, do the dad thing and nudge her awake and encourage her to get in the bed, but I digress. And in any regard, Ron himself, he went back to sleep until 6 a.m., which, from the viewpoint he had from his own bed, is when he realized Amy was no longer sleeping on the balcony. Ron got up to check in the room she was sharing with Brad to make sure that she had actually stumbled into bed like he assumed. And though Brad was there, Amy was not. Her cigarettes and her lighter were missing as well, though her shoes, all ten pairs it should be noted that she had packed, remained. Sometime in the span of half an hour, Amy Lynn Bradley had seemingly vanished. At this point, Ron decided he would start a Casual, one-man search of the ship to see if he couldn't find Amy. Who's to say how extensive or cursory this search was, but by the end of roaming the cruise himself, Amy was nowhere to be seen, and Ron had entered the first stages of dad-like worry, because in his own words, quote, it was very unlike Amy to leave and not tell us where she was going. He raced back to the cabin at this point to tell his wife that Amy seemed to be gone. By this time, what I'm estimating is between 7 to 7.30, Brad was doing his own search of the ship. During this little Brad venture, who did he happen to run into but our boy Yellow? Yellow stopped to tell Brad that he was, quote, sorry to hear your sister is missing, which, what the fuck? The Bradleys hadn't yet told the captain or any ship authorities, or at this point, as far as we know, any ship employees, that Amy was missing, so how in the frick-frack did freaking Yellow know about this already? Later, during an interview, Yellow claimed another crew member woke him up to, quote, tell him the news, that Amy was missing, but honestly, I called bullshit on that because the only person to even think anything was remotely off at the time was Amy's dad, who was roaming the ship to see if he could find Amy. Not even Mrs. Bradley or even Brad at that point knew something was amiss. It's not confirmed whether or not Ron approached crew members to ask if they'd seen Amy, but if that was the case, I feel like that would have been confirmed. That's just one of the really strange things about this case, how fast developments seem to happen in the course of these few hours of the morning. And maybe that's because in all truthfulness, the Bradleys were actually working against the clock. By the time Ron had ascertained something was afoot, alerted the rest of the family, and they hauled ass to the captain, the ship was preparing to dock in Curacao, and passengers were just about to disembark for the day's excursions. 
The Bradleys begged authorities not to let anyone off the ship, but the captain refused, claiming that they had a schedule that they needed to stick to, or when you pull aside the curtain and do, in fact, pay attention to the man there, what the captain was really saying was that they just didn't want to disrupt the mirage of fun in the sun by panicking other passengers. Which, sidebar, let's call a spade even more of a spade. The captain here was actually trying to kowtow to the almighty dollar and adhere to the Royal Caribbean public relations standards. So, instead of doing, you know, the right and moral thing by delaying the disembarkment even by a few hours, the captain instead offered to have the crew search for Amy after passengers had disembarked. And again, I say, come on. The Bradleys continued begging the captain to not do so, and he didn't listen. The crew lowered the gangplank despite the Bradleys' pleas, and hundreds of passengers began leaving the ship. It's here that the crew then started their own quote-unquote search. I say that because search is a really fucking generous term because, as we later learn, the crew did even less thorough of a search than Ron Bradley had done by himself. They truly did the bare minimum and, in fact, only searched the common areas of the ship. There was no checking of any hidey holes, no searching through crew quarters or crew-designated areas, nothing more than a quick roundabout of the ship to wash their hands of the matter. And the other thing I find both equal parts strange and honestly absolutely reprehensible about this whole handling by the crew and captain was actually how mishandled it all was. It's so gross to me that the ship's authorities just completely ignored the Bradleys' very real pleas for help in not lowering the gangplank or at least just delaying the disembarkment for the time it would take to do a proper search. What's worst of all, in my opinion, is how they, they straight up lied about the extensiveness of the search that the crew conducted after passengers had already gone into port. Truth will out, and I like to think that we all know that here at Dark's Hell, and I'm glad they got caught in their lie when the FBI got involved because, as we will soon see, well, we'll get to it. By now, word was circling the ship and throughout the grapevine of the passengers who had yet to disembark that Amy was missing. Two girls approached the Bradleys, actually, to let them know that they had seen Amy around 6 a.m. getting into an elevator with none other than our boy Yellow. And like I said earlier, never trust a man named Yellow. We'll leave it at this part and we'll be right back after this quick short ad. We arrive back to our scene and admittedly it is one of utter fucking chaos. Passengers have disembarked, the crew of the Rhapsody of the Seas can't be bothered, and the Bradley family is finding themselves in truly uncharted waters on what to do in a foreign country with their daughter missing. With the captain claiming that the ship couldn't be derailed from their schedule, the Bradleys were told that they could simply stay behind in Curacao with the ship moving on with their fun in the damn sun. So, what else were they supposed to do? The family at this point proceeded to disembark themselves in Curacao to see if Amy did, in fact, leave the ship of her own free will. With absolutely nothing coming from that small search, the Bradleys did what all good Americans do when faced with strife whilst abroad. They hit up 
the American embassy. With the embassy now aware of the situation, contact was made with the FBI. It took a bit of time for the FBI to get down to the island, but in the meantime, the Netherlands Antilles sent a ship of their own to assist with the first search, and Curacao's own Coast Guard also assisted. Hot tip, the reason Netherlands got involved was because at the time, the Rhapsody was actually flying under the Dutch flag. As the Bradleys waited for any sign of Amy to appear, the FBI arrived on the island and ordered air searches to be conducted in conjunction with the water search, and nothing turned up. The two Coast Guards suspended their own searches on March 27th, and the measly one boat the Rhapsody lent to the effort suspended their own search after only two days because, unfortunately, there was no evidence to suggest that Amy had fallen overboard, dead or alive. As these searches were going on, the Bradleys had synced up with the FBI agents on Curacao by this point, and they flew out to meet the Rhapsody on their next port of call in St. Thomas, where, lo and fucking behold, the jig was up for the crew and the captain. When the FBI boarded the ship and began their investigation, they learned how extensive the initial search the crew did on March 24th was. That is to say, it was not fucking extensive at all. Their investigation ensued where our federal friends became introduced to another dear friend of ours. Say it with me now, our boy Yellow. <laughs> a capital, uh, a myriad of capital W weirds start to crop up as the days pass and the FBI continued digging. Most of the weirdness is surrounding the dude of the hour, Yellow. A lot of the evidence that had previously half-heartedly been gathered began to discredit the story that Yellow had been singing. Remember how Yellow claimed to have left Amy around 1 a.m.? A videographer who was shooting some promo video of the cruise's nightclub actually came forward to say, um, hey, hold on, let's uh, pump the brakes on that one, because when reviewing his footage, out came clips of Yellow and Amy dancing together well past the 1 a.m. time frame that Yellow had previously stood by. Not only that, but lest we forget, the two girls who came forward to say that they had seen Amy with Yellow at 6 a.m. on the morning of her disappearance as they got into an elevator. This alleged sighting further discredited the claims Yellow had made about leaving Amy much earlier in the night. And as all of this suspicion around Yellow swirled, Brad shared his own misgivings about that weird-ass comment Yellow made about knowing Amy was missing before anyone else on board or outside the Bradley family, knew something was wrong. Unfortunately for us, though, Yellow somehow passed a polygraph when he was being interrogated, and he was never charged with any wrongdoing relating to Amy's disappearance. Further capital W weirds going on? Much like the video that surfaced of some of Amy's last movements, there were photos of Amy to examine. Except there weren't. In a truly fucking weird turn of events, when the Bradleys were given the chance to check out the photos taken by the ship's photographer from the night leading into Amy's disappearance, they found that all of the pictures had inexplicably gone missing. Any photo of Amy that had been taken during the night's dinner, which passengers were encouraged to purchase after the fact, they had vanished. To this day, no one is sure what happened to the photos but many speculate that certain crew members had removed the photos, though the motive for such a move is unknown. 
Many people aboard the cruise also began to wonder if Amy had simply fallen overboard or even chosen to jump. Throughout the searches the Dutch and Curacao Coast Guards conducted, as well as with the air search, no evidence was found to suggest such a thing had, have, had even happened. More to that effect, at around the time Amy was last seen on board, the ship itself was so close to docking at port, if she had fallen over, she feasibly would have been able to swim to shore, or if she had died in the water, her body would have been found. Her family also asserted that Amy would not, in their opinion, have chosen to kill herself. She had too much to live for. She was embarking on such an exciting chapter in her life. And as a sidebar that should be noted, Amy was terrified of heights. Ron Bradley firmly believed that she would not have thrown herself overboard or much less gotten close enough to risk toppling over because of that fear. The Bradleys, however, did have one lead to go on. A local taxi driver claimed to have actually seen Amy on the morning of her disappearance, right down in Curacao, as he was parked alongside the ship to escort passengers on the day's excursions. He claimed Amy approached him just as people began their mass exodus from the ship, nervously asking to use his phone. Not having one, he pointed her in the direction of a payphone, but he claims that the woman who he believed to be Amy instead ran off in the opposite direction of the payphone. That, however, would be the first sighting of Amy after her disappearance from the Rhapsody, and it would be the last the Bradleys would have of her as they found themselves forced to return to the United States on March 28th at the end of their so-called vacation of a lifetime. And we'll be right back after this short ad. Though the Bradleys returned to the States, it wasn't for long, and they weren't without hope for very long either. The family traveled back and forth to Curacao extensively in search of Amy and for any leads of her whereabouts. The first of such leads would occur just a few months after her disappearance, in August 1998. A man we shall henceforth refer to as Frank fucking Jones contacted the Bradleys via email just five months after Amy disappeared from the Rhapsody. Jones claimed that he was a former Special Forces officer in charge of a team of former Navy SEALs and former former army rangers, who all specialized in some Tom Cruise bullshit of recovery missions for people who found themselves in dicey situations or some such. And he told the family that he believed he could both locate and retrieve Amy from whatever dangerous debacle she was currently in. For whatever reason, the Bradleys believed him and they wired him the first $20,000 to utilize his services. The entire course of Frank fucking Jones's plan took a few months, and throughout his recon operations, he kept the Bradleys up to date on his events. He had miraculously found a local cook by the name of Judith Margaritha, who had claimed to see Amy in the company of some, quote, heavily armed Colombian guards who lived in a, quote, armed complex. Just muddle over that one, if you will. Backing up her claims... Judith described in detail the various tattoos Amy had, including the very specific Space Jam Tasmanian Devil on her shoulder. Sidebar, the 90s were a time for weird tattoos, I guess, so let's just leave it at that. <laughs> what is our modern day infinity sign is the 90s Space Jam Tasmanian Devil. 
One thing, though, that's always super fucked me up about Judith's claim was how, as a form of positively IDing Amy, she claimed that she had overheard the woman she thought was Amy singing the exact lullaby that Iva Bradley used to sing to Amy when she was a baby. I'm sure we all know where this Frank fucking Jones nonsense is going, but like, truly, how the fuck did she know about the lullaby? This will be the first in a very long line of hashtag questions, I can assure you of that. As the months went on and Frank fucking Jones continued to squeeze money out of the Bradleys, he relayed that Amy's situation was, quote, increasingly becoming more dangerous. But lucky us, he believed that he had just the plan to extract her from her situation in what seemed to be the nick of time. So long, though, as the Bradleys passed along another $100,000 for Jones and his team to be able to complete their mission. Thank God they weren't totally blinded by hope because at that point, <laughs> the Bradleys did demand proof of life before they wired that much money to Frank. In response, he emailed them a picture of one of the blonde Colombian guards who was sitting with what appeared to be Amy on the beach. The woman was actually identified as Amy by her mother due to the tattoo Mrs. Bradley could see on her ankle. With such rock-hard proof, sidebar, not super rock-hard proof, wish there was a little bit more before they had done this. However, the Bradleys wired Jones the additional 100K, flew down to Miami on Jones's instruction on a private jet provided by Ron's employer, and oh boy, can you imagine how bad that company must have felt? Anyway... <laughs> And they awaited the phone call from Jones that would tell them that Amy was safe and on her way home. And they waited. And they waited. The Bradleys sat in a hotel in Florida for a week before they received the phone call from Jones. Only to be told that the extraction mission had been aborted due to a gunfight that broke out and injured some of his men. He assured the Bradleys that there would be another opportunity in the future to get Amy, but for now, it was a no-go. The Bradleys at this point were understandably frantic, fearing Amy was in more danger now than she had ever been before. However, they then, almost immediately after Jones's call, received another phone call. This time, from a man that they had never heard of before. Tim Bickholtz was a team member of Jones's and called the Bradleys to tell them that he had just overheard the conversation that they had had with Frank fucking Jones, a conversation Bickholtz shared with them that was built on entirely nothing but lies. The other members of Jones's team had begun to suspect that something wasn't quite right with their so-called mission after seeing the very normal people who lived in the allegedly heavily armed compound containing supposed Colombian guards armed to the teeth, after they had been asked to don wigs and pose for beachside pictures with fake tattoos, and they'd especially begun to doubt things after they heard Frank relay the fake story of a fake gun battle while sitting in a hotel bar. The jig, as they say, was up. Frank fucking Jones was subsequently charged and found guilty of mail fraud, served five years in prison, and had to repay the Bradleys the $250,000 
they wound up paying for his so-called services. Though Frank fucking Jones was the first to claim he had found Amy, what we'll come to find is that his claims may have been the first, but the alleged sightings of Amy were not the last. Excluding the alleged sighting of Amy by the taxi driver on the morning of her disappearance, there have been four sightings of Amy that have been made public. Quick recap on that first one. A local taxi driver in Curacao came forward shortly after the alarm was raised about Amy being missing to say that she or a woman looking similarly to her had approached him as passengers were disembarking, asking if she could use his cell phone. He could only point her in the direction of a payphone, and at that, she took off running in the opposite direction. Though there would be a sighting of Amy in August 1998, just five months after she disappeared, this first one wouldn't be reported until May 1999. David Carmichael, an engineer from Canada, was vacationing in Curacao with a friend in August 98 after enjoying an afternoon of diving. While Carmichael and his friend were cleaning and packing up their diving gear, he could see a strange sight from down the beach that was moving their way. Approaching from the opposite direction, he noticed a young woman accompanied by two men, one white and one black. And it should be said, accompanied is a pretty generous term because according to Carmichael, he claims that it looked like they were more or less flanking the woman, policing her movements, watching her carefully, and refusing to let her out of both arm's length or sight. As they drew closer, the woman's head jerked up when she heard Carmichael speaking English, and she began to make a beeline towards him. The woman was close enough that Carmichael assumed that she was about to say something to them, especially since she made direct and intense eye contact with them for several seconds, during which Carmichael noticed her extensive collection of tattoos. Two of them stood out to him in particular, a lizard circling her belly button and a Tasmanian devil on her shoulder. According to his later statement to a federal grand jury, quote, just as she was about to say something, the black fellow came into my line of vision and he sort of motioned her away. She sort of looked down and turned around and walked away. Carmichael additionally said that before the two men forcibly took the woman into a nearby beachfront bar, the black bodyguard gave him a menacing look, one that told Carmichael clearly to leave her alone. A bit rattled by the strange occurrence, Carmichael and his friend nevertheless shook it off, and they didn't think much of it throughout the rest of their vacation. It wouldn't be until several months later that Carmichael did recall the unsettling interaction. While watching Unsolved Mysteries, shout out, Carmichael was shocked when he recognized a face on the screen. The woman from the beach that day in Curacao was apparently Amy Lynn Bradley, whose case was being featured on the show in front of him. Carmichael was put in touch with the Bradleys and even flew out to Virginia to meet with the family in order to share his account of what happened that day on the beach. Though the FBI and local law enforcement conducted a search of the area, Carmichael told the Bradleys about it had been too long since the sighting and no evidence was found. Carmichael later said, quote, I'm not 99%, I'm 100% sure. It was her. I am haunted by that encounter with Amy. I know it was her. The next sighting of Amy would take place a few months later in 1999, but similarly to David Carmichael's account, it wouldn't be reported immediately. In fact, this account wasn't reported 
for almost three fucking years, not until 2002. Active duty at the time, Naval Petty Officer William Hefner with the USS Chandler came forward to share what he believed to be another sighting of Amy. The sighting took place at a brothel in Curacao, which is why Hefner didn't report it. This brothel in question was strictly forbidden to Navy officers since it wasn't legally sanctioned by local authorities to operate. Sidebar, at the time, prostitution was legal in Curacao, but this particular establishment wasn't up to snuff. And, at the time, Hefner didn't want his commanding officer to find out he had basically fucked off on direct orders and went to the brothel anyway. Hefner claims that as he was having a few drinks with what he assumed to be local patrons of the brothel, one man next to him left, took what Hefner assumed was a sex worker upstairs, and the other one stepped away for several minutes. This left Hefner alone with another presumed sex worker. Once the second man left their immediate earshot, the remaining woman leaned over and said, my name is Amy Bradley and I need help. Hefner had no idea what she was talking about and essentially asked her what in the world did she want from him? According to Hefner, the woman said, quote, she was in trouble. She said, they've got my papers and I can't leave the island. He claimed she began grabbing his arm, repeating that her name was Amy Bradley and begged him not to forget it. Confused as all get out, Hefner told her that if she was a U.S. citizen, she could simply go down to port and tell any ship that she needed help. Hell, his own ship was docked just down the street. At this, the woman grew even more frantic, saying, quote, You don't understand. I can't leave. Help me. Please help me. But it was too late. One of the men rejoined their group, noticed the woman's emotional state, and motioned for her to be quiet. Clearly, we aren't working with the top brass when it came to Hefner, but to be fair, at the time, he had no idea anyone was missing. And again, he was afraid of what might happen if it got out that he had disobeyed specific orders to not be in this brothel, which is why he told no one of the strange occurrence. It wasn't until he saw Amy's face on the cover of People magazine in 2002 that he remembered that night in the brothel, realized what he had been a part of, and who had approached him. Much like David Carmichael, again, authorities went to investigate, but they found no evidence to support his sighting because the brothel had been burned to the fucking ground. In Ron Bradley's own words, quote, it seems like a lot of places in Curacao get burned down for whatever reason. Ron Bradley, ladies and gentlemen, master of shade. The third sighting of Amy took place in 2005, and this time, it was reported by a woman named Judy Maurer. In a timely fucking fashion, it should be noted, because us gals know what's up. This sighting was also different because we were no longer rocking up in Curacao. Judy's claim actually came from Barbados when she entered a department store bathroom. Judy stated that she was frightened just after she entered as another woman entered herself, followed by two men who began threatening her to, quote, finish the deal. According to Judy, one of the men said, quote, the deal is at 11 o'clock. You better be ready to go, and I'm warning you. You better cooperate. This is my deal, and you better not mess it up. The two men left, and Judy waited a few minutes before exiting her own stall, 
finding the woman leaning over the sink and looking close to tears. With the few seconds they would have together, Judy tried to comfort the woman, asking what her name was and where she was from. The other woman spoke extremely quietly and said she was Amy from Virginia. Only seconds later, one of the men began pounding on the door, and Judy rushed out of the bathroom, passing four men waiting outside, which, like, what? <laughs> After returning home, Judy was reading an article about missing people when she stumbled upon recently discovered photos of what appeared to be Amy and was shocked when she realized that not only did she recognize the woman in the photo as the one that she had had the unnerving encounter with in Barbados, but that woman's name was also Amy. Judy contacted the Bradleys and using her statement, the FBI was able to create a composite photo of what Amy would look like in 2005 and what three of her alleged abductors who had been waiting outside the bathroom that Judy ran into looked like. Though the sketch was a massively helpful step in the search, law enforcement interrogated department store employees, but none could remember seeing the woman or any of the men depicted in the composite sketch. In the same year, 2005, the Bradleys received a shocking anonymous email. Within the email were photos found online of a woman named Jazz, who had an unnervingly striking resemblance to Amy, though she was photographed in suggestive poses, scantily clad outfits, and had much longer hair than the pixie cut Amy was rocking at the time of her abduction. Shout out to pixie cuts, I myself have one. The photos have been taken from a quote, adult vacation website, where the woman photograph was being advertised as an escort for men seeking a companion while traveling in the Caribbean. A forensic detective took the emailed photos and compared them to family photos of Amy. He found such details as similar cheekbones, relational eye shape, the cheek angle, eyelid shape, and eyebrow ridge all matched up. There was similar forearm length and bone structure. The midsection of the nose is the same, despite the differing angles of the photographs. Facial structure, hairline, and an unusual curve along the upper ear all determined for the detective that the woman was, in fact, Amy. He told the Bradleys that he was so sure he would bet his career on it, according to Iva Bradley. This photo and the forensic analysis done by several other experts gave the Bradleys hope that Amy was, in fact, still alive, and they began to turn their thoughts to the possibility that Amy had been sold into sex trafficking. The FBI at the time began tracing the IP address of where the photos came from and who the website could belong to. However, despite all of their resources, the FBI was unable to determine where the photos originated from and who might have taken them or truly any concrete and identifying information about the photos, where they came from, or who the woman in them was. These emailed photographs were the last known solid lead within the case of Amy's disappearance. It's been 22 years since Amy Lynn Bradley was last seen aboard the Rhapsody of the Seas as the ship docked into Curacao. In so many years, one would think we'd have more answers, more leads, more verifiable information about just what did happen to Amy in that short, early morning time frame before her disappearance. Though we may not have many answers, I know I certainly have some motherfucking hashtag questions. And let's start it off with number one. What was the exact timeline of the Bradley siblings the night slash morning 
of Amy's disappearance. Who entered the cabin at what time? Did something funky happen during the time Amy and Bradley may have been separated? Who were the three staff members of the dining crew that were so insistent on connecting with Amy? Why were they so insistent on connecting with Amy? And more to the point, why did they insist on wanting to take Amy to Carlos and Charlie's while they were docked in Aruba on that first night? And if that name, Carlos and Charlie, sounds familiar, that's because that's the same fucking club Natalie Holloway would disappear from in 2005. So ruminate on that one. What was the layout of the Bradley's cabin and balcony like? Could Amy feasibly have entered and exited the cabin without waking up her father, thus leading further discredit to the theory that she fell or jumped off the balcony? What time did the ship actually dock and what time did passengers start disembarking in conjunction to the time frame of discovering Amy was missing? Why in the world was the intention behind someone removing all the photos of Amy from the professional photographer's repertoire? The photographer has stated he distinctly remembers printing them, which begs the question, who removed them? How closely investigated was Yellow? We don't know much about the thoroughness of his investigation, though the FBI cleared him as a suspect. He was later fired by the Royal Caribbean Line, and since then, his own daughter has actually spoken out, claiming that she believes her father knows much more about Amy's disappearance than he ever let on. Was Yellow overlooked as a suspect as the Bradleys and the FBI were distracted, racing through the shrinking time frame and the changing location of the ship, which was the last place Amy was seen? Do we think it was Amy who approached the local taxi driver on the morning of her disappearance? Who sent the photos of escort Jazz to the Bradleys? Why? And why not come forward if they had positive intentions in helping the Bradleys find their daughter? And finally, what level of hell do we believe Frank fucking Jones is destined for? There are at least a few main theories that circulate and percolate throughout the interwebs about what people believe happened to Amy. The top three are these. One, Amy, drunk and overtired from an all-night party fest with her brother, was too close to the balcony railing, ended up falling overboard accidentally, and either died by impact on the way down or she drowned. Two, Amy, in the midst of an unexpected mental health crisis, died by suicide and threw herself over the balcony railing. And number three, something nefarious happened after the alleged brief span of time when she willingly left the family's cabin and after she was allegedly spotted by two female passengers getting into the elevator with Yellow at 6 a.m. And this nefarious event led to Amy's disappearance. Being a classic Libra myself, I have classic Libra problems. And in this case, it comes down to the fact that I find myself stuck between a hodgepodge of two-ish theories as being the most credible with only slight differences in their outcome. Before I get into that, though, my own theory, I'm here to discredit a few. And let's just first add this caveat. The FBI already officially ruled out the possibility of suicide or accident. There is truly not much in this world that could convince me to subscribe to the idea that Amy, whether she accidentally fell or purposely jumped, managed to get over the balcony railing and fall into the Caribbean blue below without one, 
making a single fucking noise, two, hitting a single fucking thing on the way down, and three, doing all of the above without a single fucking person seeing anything. There is about 0% possibility she would have been able to accomplish all three of these things, given the fact that the ship was just about docked for the day and people were up and about on their own neighboring balconies. Someone on some level would have noticed a body, conscious or not, falling off the damn cruise, if that did in fact happen. Cruises are filled with busybodies. Some Karen with a Kate plus eight haircut most certainly would have run her mouth about seeing that the second she did, if that did in fact happen. Also, you mean to tell me that the FBI, the Netherlands, and the Curacao Coast Guard, all conducting their water and air searches in water, that it should be mentioned, was very much shallow because, again, they were essentially docked. These three organizations wouldn't have been able to find a conscious, unconscious, or dead body in that same Caribbean crystal blue water throughout the extensive and days-long searches that they were all conducting, especially since, again, they were not in open water. And say it with me now, because they were just about to dock. They were docking, damn it. <laughs> Amy would have been seen going overboard, and much more to the point, she would have been found in the shallow waters of the canal as the crews and its crew were going about the early stages of docking. Again, dead, unconscious, conscious, she would have been seen and she would have been found. Thus, I say to the fell and or jumped theory, case dismissed, bring in the dancing lobsters. And now that that's out of the way, let's discuss my own theory. Where there's fire, there's smoke. And where there's a man willingly going by the name of Yellow, there is a fucking problem. In the case of Amy's disappearance and all of the questions surrounding the instigating factor of what led to her vanishing from the cruise, all roads decidedly lead to our boy Yellow. I deviate between two possibilities on what happened, but one is a little more substantiated than the other, solely due to the various sightings over the years, which, you know, knowing who I am, I have further thoughts on. I think that there's a very high likelihood that the two girls who claimed to have spotted Amy getting into the elevator with Yellow were, in fact, right. I also think following that sighting, a number of events could have taken place. Having already spent the night dancing, drinking, and ostensibly flirting together, Amy had the intention of going to the top deck for a smoke, and she was diverted by that, by running into Yellow. And at that point, she agreed to hang out with him. Whether that was in the form of sharing a cigarette, hooking up, admiring the sunrise, or otherwise, who is to say? But after Amy got in that elevator, something happened with Yellow, and she was incapacitated. This alleged form of incapacitation takes, unfortunately, many ideations given the numerous ways that we know violence can be committed against women. He may have drugged her, beaten her unconscious, assaulted her. The point is, there is a point in this possible storyline where Amy stopped consenting to whatever interaction she was having with Yellow, and allegedly he overpowered her in the name of accomplishing whatever it was that he wanted. 
The end game here for Yellow's supposed motive is also a bit iffy. Was he trying to have sex with her? She resisted, and he beat her in a rage, but then panicked? Did they do drugs together, and she accidentally overdosed? Was he working in conjunction with other crew members on board the ship, or even on shore, to get Amy, a pretty, white, American woman, off the ship for whatever reason? There are so many questions that come alongside this theory, but it leads into the theory that I think holds a little more weight. And of course... It still starts with our boy, Yellow. Like we just established, I think something nefarious happened after she was seen with Yellow by the two other passengers getting onto an elevator with him. After this point, I believe she was forcibly taken off the boat. That is to say, she left the ship not of her free will, where she was inducted into a system of prostitution and sexual slavery throughout the Caribbean. The things that convinced me of this theory... David Carmichael's account of seeing Amy in 1999, as well as Judy Mowers in 2005. I have a very hard time believing the veracity of William Hefner's account because, let's be real, the odds are not in his favor that his drunk-as-a-skunk self truly remembered his interactions at the brothel. Though they were detailed in what happened, the arm grabbing, telling him her name, claiming, quote, they had her papers. It's the details that'll trip you up, and it's those details that make me pause. Memory is a fickle and funny thing. We're all capable of filling in erroneous details and even planting false memories of our own on our own accord. The details in Hefner's account are what makes me pause on his story. Why was his so much more detailed and descriptive than any other interaction, though his probably happened in just as much of the same time span as Judy or Carmichael's. Why would his interaction be the outlier in comparison to the one Carmichael had and the one Amy allegedly had with Judy Maurer? If you compare the three alleged sites, it's really David and Judy's accounts that sing up. Hefner's is the odd one out, with all of its details, the amount Amy was seemingly allowed to speak, and then the sheer utter fact, he was drunk. I don't doubt that he believes he saw Amy, and there's mostly, most likely a thick current of guilt for feeling like he didn't do something at the time. But in that same spirit, I think it's wildly misplaced guilt because I don't believe William Hefner actually saw Amy in that brothel. There are several things that lead me to thinking David Carmichael and Judy Maurer sightings were in fact of Amy though. For one, the similarities between them are too on the nose to just be coincidence. Surrounded by bodyguard type men who both berated and forced her behaviors, you know, the walking between them, pulling her away from Carmichael when she might've spoken, threatening her back into silence, the limited opportunity to even interact fully with another person of her own volition, and the identifying factors that helped add credence to their sightings. Carmichael saw her very distinctive Tasmanian devil shoulder tattoo, while Judy was told directly that the woman in the bathroom was Amy from Virginia. It's hard to deny those small but desperately important key details in a case like this. Another reason why I think, in particular, David Carmichael's sighting was legitimate? When giving his statement to law enforcement, it was later revealed that Carmichael was shown a photograph of yellow 
who, as we all know by now, was the last person reportedly seen with Amy. Upon seeing the photo, Carmichael said, quote, if that guy yellow has a double in the world, it was that man on the beach that pulled Amy away that day. All of this said and done, I do have to say that unfortunately, I think 22 years later, Amy is in fact dead. We all know how desperately, dangerously volatile the sex trafficking underworld can be, and that many of those who are in fact trafficked or forced into sex slavery don't tend to live long once they find themselves victim to these circumstances. Given the heightened attention Amy's case received in 2005 after Judy Maurer's sighting, I think Amy's captors ended up murdering her due to the risk that her being alive posed to them. The Bradleys still deeply believe that Amy is alive to this day, but given the lack of leads, evidence, or clues since 2005, I find myself believing that she was alive until 2005, and she has unfortunately since been murdered by members of the sexual slavery organization she was possibly, allegedly, nobody sue me, forced into by Yellow after falling victim to him on board the Rhapsody of the Seas. And with that, so far at least, is the case of the disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley. I'll be back next Monday with another episode discussing a case that I've been wanting to cover since I even had the idea of Dark as Hell. In my opinion, this case isn't covered nearly enough, and it's one that is even more important to discuss today. Before I sign off, I want to wish a quick happy birthday to one of the first supporters of Dark as Hell. Aaron Sella, here's to you, and I hope today is filled with champagne, mysteries, and people who believe that Burke did, in fact, do it. Dark as Hell is now streaming on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google, and a variety of other smaller podcasting networks. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review if you're liking what you're hearing. On social media, Dark as Hell can be found on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod, again, all one word. The Dark as Hell Patreon website is up and somewhat running. Feel free to check it out at patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast. In the show notes, I'm going to be linking a few uh, websites that will uh, be relevant to Amy's case, and I'm also going to be linking some resources for those who are interested in getting more involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and engaging in the important conversations and work being done around the country. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with another story that's dark as hell. Yeah.